And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. The angel standing on the four corners of the earth does not signify that the earth is square. God knows the world he made is round. He sitteth upon the circle of the earth, Isaiah 40, 22. The God who made it and sat upon the circle of it knew it was not square. Therefore, the term, the four corners of the earth, is a Bible expression depicting north, south, east, and west, the four points of the compass. The four angels standing at these four positions administering judgment are commanded to lay off so that there might be a time of great revival as the servants of God are sealed in their foreheads. Proof, verses 2 and 3. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea, saying, Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till, get that, until we have sealed the servants of God in their foreheads. The wicked get their seal, 666, under the super-deceiver, the great imitator, the Antichrist, in Revelation 13, verses 15 to 18. The genuine believers get their seal from the angel of God at this point of time. Verses 4 to 8 picture the sealing process taking place among the Israelites. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed in hundred and forty and four thousand of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Nephthalim were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed twelve thousand. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000. And of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. This group cannot be the church. For the church is already in heaven, Revelation 4.1. Also, the church is not Jewish, but composed of all races, people, and tongues. Again, this group does not picture the seven-day Adventists or the Jehovah's Witnesses. Both have claimed this in their theological writings. The Seventh-day Adventists say that the 144,000 are faithful Sabbath-day observers. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that the 144,000 are the overcomers of the flock. Both are drastically wrong. The 144,000 are not Englishmen or Americans either, as the advocates of British Israelism teach. They make the Israelites become foreigners of the Anglo-Saxons. Come on now, Herbert Armstrong and Garner Ted. Surely you can't be that foolish. These are Jewish tribes with Jewish names. Do the names Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Nephilim, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin sound British? <laughs> had they been Heathcliff, Sir Winston, or Sherlock Holmes, you might have had a chance to propound such nonsense. But under the circumstances, you'd better allow Jews with Jewish names to head up Jewish tribes in a Jewish nation, Israel. Presently, the Jews are not even certain of their tribal heritage. But the omniscient, all-knowing God untangles this condition at the appointed time. None of us really knows what our stock is. I say I'm a Belgian, but one of my mother's forerunners was a Spaniard living in Belgium. Through migrations, most of us are a mixed hodgepodge of differing nationalities. 
Perhaps it's best not to know or to trace our ancestry. It could be embarrassing to discover our roots. One might discover that he was a descendant of Attila the Hun. <laughs> I wonder about some folks I watch eating in restaurants. They should be given a shovel instead of a fork. The salads all over their face and the spaghetti's hanging down their chin. Ugh. You folks planning to study your family tree, beware. You might also discover some of your relatives hanging by the neck, while evolutionists might find theirs hanging by the tail. <laughs> but let's get back to more serious matters. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists are anointed by the Spirit. Joel 2, verses 28 and 29 describe the situation as the Spirit-filled preachers proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. It shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my Spirit. There's a great deal of confusion concerning the presence of the Holy Spirit during the tribulation hour. This has resulted from a faulty understanding and interpretation of 2 Thessalonians 2.7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. The term letteth is the old English word for hinders. The picture before us is the rise of the Antichrist. Verse 6 states, You know what withholdeth that the Antichrist might be revealed in his time? Then verse 7, already quoted, makes it clear that the hinderer... The Holy Spirit continues to hinder the Antichrist's rise until this Holy Spirit is taken out of the way. Another reason millions believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. The hinderer lives in the hearts of his people. Romans 8, 9, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. And he cannot be taken unless those in whom he lives are taken. Hallelujah. But wait, the Spirit's removal speaks of his restraining power exclusively. The Holy Spirit is God, the third member of the Trinity. As God, He is omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, and omnipresent, or everywhere at all times. The Holy Spirit cannot be removed from earth because He, as God, is in all places constantly. David states in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 10, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. You see, the Spirit is everywhere, in heaven, in hell, on the earth, and in the sea. Therefore, he as a person cannot, I repeat, cannot be removed during the tribulation hour. His restraining influence against sin is removed, and that's you and me. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. We are God's preservative and dispellers of darkness. Imagine what happens when the church, God's restraining influence is removed. All hell breaks loose on earth. That's the way, the only way the Spirit is removed, by the evacuation of Christians in whose hearts he lives. Therefore, this omniscient one ever-present on earth, continues to work by producing one of the greatest revivals in the history of mankind. The message of the 144,000 centers around the person of the Lord Jesus. It was that way among Old Testament prophets, New Testament preachers, and remains the same among tribulation evangelists. To Jesus give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins, Acts 10.43. 
In addition to preaching the message of the shed blood of Jesus, the 144,000 proclaimed the advent of the king. Listen to them. The king is coming! The king is coming! This is not the rapture, Revelation 4.1, but the revelation or revealing of Christ as king, Revelation 19.16. This gospel or good news of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witnesses unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Matthew 24:14. Now, to get a full picture of the complete message, one must study the life of John the Baptist. John's message was one, repentance, Matthew 3, 2. And two, the blood, John 1, 29. He said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. This message of repentance and the blood was to prepare the hearts of the people for the third part of his message, the coming of the king, who was at that point of time rejected, but will be accepted when Jesus comes as King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 19.16. The 144,000 preached this same message. The result? A worldwide revival ensues. One of the elders asked, What are these which are arrayed in white robes, and whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 7, verses 13 and 14. Let's study this God-sent, Holy Spirit-empowered revival step by step. Verse 9. After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands. After this? After what? After the 144,000 Jewish evangelists are sealed by the Spirit of God. God's message is always to the Jew first, then the Gentiles. Romans 1.16. Now that the Jews have heard, John sees a great multitude which no man could count from every race and nationality standing before the throne. The white robes prove that they have trusted in the message of the blood and are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21. The waving of the palms in their hands signify victory. They have overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. They are joyous because they have survived the first six seals. Their joy leads to praise, verse 10. They cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb. This multitude recognizes the source of their salvation and victory. They cannot be kept silent. Who can when the grace of God does its mighty work of salvation in one's heart? Immediately, the angels join with them in praise to the Father and to the Son, verses 11 and 12. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. Amen. What a picture. The angels standing around the throne where Father and Son are seated, and around the elders, the raptured church, then falling on their faces in worship, praise and adoration, pronouncing the sevenfold perfection of praise as one, blessing, two, glory, three, wisdom, four, thanksgiving, five, honor, six, power, and seven, might, to God forever and forever. No wonder they say amen, and we add amen and amen.
In verse 13, one of the elders asks a question. What or who are these which are arrayed in white robes? Whence came they? The answer, verse 14, I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is another proof that the church is in heaven, not upon earth. Why? John does not recognize this crowd. He knew the rapture church in heaven, Revelation 4.1, but not the ones on earth in this text. These are tribulation saints who had washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. If you won't listen to me, please listen again to God. These are they which came out of the great tribulation, verse 14. That settles it. This is why John, who recognized the church in heaven, is in the fog concerning this group. They are his new brothers and sisters in Christ, though unknown to John at that time. They were saved at a different period of time, a time when he and the church were in heaven. The church was not on earth to make their acquaintance. Oh, the next scene is exciting. Each group saved during different dispensations of time we find has different duties to perform. The church is the bride of Christ and enjoys the 1,000-year honeymoon upon earth, Revelation 20, verse 4. They're rulers, kings, and priests, 1 Peter 2, 9, Revelation 1, 6. The 144,000 will serve as bodyguards of the Lamb and His bride, Revelation 14, 4. The Gentiles saved during the tribulation will be temple servants to wait on Christ and His bride in the glorious temple described in Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, set up immediately after Russia under the names of Gog, Magog, Meshach, Tubal, and Rosh is destroyed, chapters 38 and 39. Oh, it's all so near. Russia may march soon. Antichrist will be smashed. The Lord will return with his bride. The millennial temple will be erected, and the Gentiles will serve. Verse 15. Therefore are they before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple, and he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. Because God is dwelling among them, the deprivations they suffered under the Antichrist are now abolished. Under the reign of the world dictator, there was little food. One had to take the mark of the beast, 666, to obtain sustenance. The believers who refused the number had to eke out an existence day by day. Now with the Lord in their midst, the picture changes, verses 16 and 17. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them as far as its scorching effects, Revelation 16.8. Nor any heat, the fires of persecution, 1 Peter 1.7. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them unto living fountains of waters, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. From this point onward, the people of God from all dispensations enjoy the presence of God. Their days of suffering, heartache, and abuse by an ungodly world are finished. Tears are wiped away as every remembrance of past sorrow is obliterated from their minds. Chapter 8. We are now about to witness the opening of the seventh seal in verse 1. This seventh seal includes the seven trumpet judgments. As we had a parenthesis between the seal judgments, chapter 7, so shall we find a parenthesis between the trumpet judgments, Revelation 10.1 to 11.14. The trumpet judgments about to fall are so frightening, terrifying, and shocking that all the hosts of heaven become silent. Verse 1, And when he'd opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. What caused this breathtaking scene among angels and men? 
the contemplation of the next seven trumpet blasts depicted beginning with verse 2. And I saw the seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. These are the judgments mentioned by Enoch, Jude 14, expected by the psalmist, Psalm 96, 13, and confirmed by Paul, Acts 17, 31. This is the moment when the wrath of God is to be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Romans 1, 18. Before the first trumpet sends forth its blast in verse 7, we witness an unusual prayer meeting in verses 3 to 5. Verse 3, And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer, and there was given unto him much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. I believe this angel to be the Lord Jesus Christ, because he ministers both to God and men. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, and it's the man, Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. The Savior also appeared as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament in many instances. He wrestled with Jacob, walked among Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and made numerous other Old Testament visits to his people. This mediator between God and men who liveth forever to make intercession, Hebrews 7.25, stands at the altar adding incense, efficacy to the prayers being offered. The prayers, of course, are occurring on earth. They are imprecatory prayers for judgment, as we saw in Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. How long, O Lord, wilt thou not avenge us? The prayers reach the throne of God. Verse 4. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints, ascends up before God out of the angel's hand. At that point, prayer is answered, and judgment is prepared. Verse 5, And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it upon the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. What a contrast from the solemn silence of verse 1. Now every imaginable noise preparatory for judgment is heard. Verse 6, And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The military says, Ready! Aim! Fire! This is it. Verse 7, The first angel sounded, and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood, and they were cast upon the earth. And the third part of the trees was burned up, and all green grass was burned up. There is no difficulty in understanding this literally. The same judgment occurred in Exodus 9, verses 22 to 25. The Lord said unto Moses, Stretch forth thine hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched forth his rod toward heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail, and the fire ran along upon the ground. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with hail, very grievous, such as there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. It happened then, it will happen again. Verse 8, And the second angel sounded, as it were, a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea, and the third part of the sea became blood. This judgment is undoubtedly a giant meteor falling into the sea. Notice it says, as it were, a mountain. Symbolic. Always take every word of the Bible literally unless God tells you to take it figuratively. Here's an example. Something gigantic as or like a mountain is cast into the sea 
and causes a bloody mess. This also happened in Moses' day, Exodus 7, verses 19 and 20. The Lord spake unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon their rivers, and upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood, and that there may be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so as the Lord commanded. And he lifted up the rod and smote the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. And the fish that was in the river died. God's second blast is so horrendous that a third part of the creatures in the sea die and a third part of the ships are destroyed. Verse 9. God only knows what horrendous plagues will result when nuclear war under upon and above the oceans, takes place. Verses 10 and 11, And the third angel sounded, and there fell a great star from heaven, burning as it were a lamp. And it fell upon the third part of the rivers, and upon the fountains of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. And the third part of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the waters, because they were made bitter. This also occurred in Moses' day, Exodus 7 17. Here is another meteoric phenomena. A star or meteor soaring through space speeds toward the earth. One third of the earth's water supply becomes a deadly poison affecting rivers, springs, and wells. A volcanic explosion in the Aleutian Islands, March 21, 1823, caused the waters in that area to become bitter and unfit for human consumption. This could easily happen. God created every star, knows their locations, and has named them, Job 9, verses 9 and 10. He knows where the star Wormwood, meaning bitterness, is located as well. Deuteronomy 29, 18, Jeremiah 9, 15, and Amos 5, 7 prove that it will happen. Now, verses 12 and 13. The fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and a third part of the moon, and a third part of the stars. So a third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for a third part of it, and the night likewise. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe! 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 To the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels, which are yet to sound. The fourth judgment has to do with earth's luminaries, sun, moon, and stars. Interesting, is it not that God on the fourth day of creation said, let there be lights, and there was light, Genesis 1.14. Now at the blast of the fourth trumpet, one-third of the light produced by earth's luminaries is extinguished. This too happened in Moses' day, Exodus 10, verses 21 to 23. The Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over all the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. It happened. It will happen again. But the worst is yet to come. An angel flying through the midst of heaven cries, Whoa! 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 This correlates with Daniel chapter 9, where the 70th week of Daniel is described. The first three and one-half years are not nearly as severe as the final three and one-half years. 
Our Lord in Matthew 24, 8 describes the first three and a half years as the beginning of sorrows and the final three and a half years as the great tribulation. Matthew 24, 21. As the tribulation comes to its climax, the judgments become more severe and the loss of life greater. This is specifically noticed as one observes the space given to trumpet judgments 5 and 6. One to two verses cover the scope of trumpet judgments 1 through 4. But the fifth trumpet judgment covers 12 verses and the sixth 9. Let's examine then this lengthy portion covering trumpet judgment number 5. Verse 1. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. The star John saw, a male personage, is without doubt the devil of verse 11. The Greek tense in verse 1 is not fall, present tense, but fallen, past tense. Isaiah describes this fall in chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high God. Satan's fall came through pride. He wanted to be co-equal with God himself. Jesus beheld his fall and said to his 70 disciples, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, Luke 10, 18. This fallen one is presented with a key to the bottomless pit and uses it. Verse 2, he opened the bottomless pit and there rose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. The term bottomless pit does not refer to one <laughs> who has a voluminous appetite. A big eater. Instead, the literal Greek renders it the pit of the abyss. The term is found nine times in the New Testament. In each case, it is a place to restrain or hold certain beings which have come under the judgment of God. For instance, when Christ went into the country of the Gadarenes and met a certain man who had a legion of demons, and the demons within the man besought the Lord that he would not command them to go into the abyss or deep. Luke 8.31. Their dread and terror of the pit of the abyss was so great that they would rather become incarnated in swine. Oh, it must be a terrible place. How frightful then must be the hour when the prison house of fallen angels is finally opened. The smoke alone ascending out of the pit darkens the sun and the air. Talk about pollution. You environmentalists better get saved or you'll be around for the greatest soot inundation of history. You'll have a real job picketing the portals of hell, but it'll be too late then. Verse 3. There came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. These are not literal locusts. Their power is too great. They're most likely fallen angels who have been restrained and imprisoned in the bottomless pit since their fall in Genesis 6. These wicked beings chained in darkness all these centuries, Second Peter 2, 4, can hardly wait to begin their acts of evil. They are told what they can and cannot do, however. Verse 4. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. 
In chapter 7, we saw the multitude sealed. The fallen angels are not allowed to touch the sealed ones, but only the unsealed. Those who've dabbled with the beast and his number, 666. However, they are not allowed to kill these unsaved ones, the unsealed, but only torture them in an unprecedented way. Verse 5, And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he strikes a man. It will become so depressive and gloomy a period of time that verse 6 states, In those days shall men seek death and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. Verses 7 to 10 give us a description of these locusts or fallen angels. Verse 7, The shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. This speaks of strength and speed. On their heads were as it were crowns like gold. This speaks of royalty, a picture of conquering. Their faces were as the faces of men, denoting intelligence. Verse 8, they had hair as the hair of women, picturing attractiveness. Their teeth were as the teeth of lions, portraying cruelty. Verse 9, they had breastplates, as it were breastplates of iron, picturing invincibility. The sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle, denoting calamity. These facts, along with the information that they had tails like unto scorpions and their stings in their tails and their power was to hurt men five months, verse 10, present quite a fearful and frightening picture upon earth as the pit of the abyss is opened and the convicts of the ages fallen angels are released upon the earth. The fallen star is identified in verse 11. He is the leader of these perverted angels, for they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name is Abaddon. But in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. This king is named in both Hebrew and Greek. Abaddon is Hebrew. The term is found six times in the entire Hebrew Bible, but only once in our English version. Job 26.6, 28.22, 31.12, Psalm 88.11, Proverbs 15.11, and 20. 720. Apollyon is Greek and means the destroyer, a word that certainly describes Satan. Well, one woe is past, and behold, there come two more woes hereafter. Verse 12.